Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture podcast. And today I'm here with Emily LeBeau Lucchese, who is the author of Ugly Prey, An Innocent Woman and the Death Sentence That Scandalized Jazz Age Chicago. Emily, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping you could start by sharing a little bit about how you came about writing this book, how you got interested in looking at this case. So I always knew... um, in my career that I wanted to write narrative nonfiction, historic nonfiction, because it's my absolute favorite genre. And I feel that um, we don't have enough about women. So my initial goal was I wanted to add more books about women to this particular bookshelf. And um, I was reading uh, a book called The Girls of Murder City by Douglas Berry. And it's a great book if you have an opportunity to to read it. But he um, focuses on Belva and Beulah and the women who inspired the movie or the play Chicago. It was a play first. And he also focuses on a reporter named Maureen Dallas Watkins, who covered the trials and then wrote the book. And there was a photograph of Sabella uh, Nitty in the book, um, the one we ended up using on the cover. And it was very... um, intrigued by this photo, that here was this woman who was accused of this terrible crime. And it was very clear that that there was a bias against her, that the prosecutors were playing to the bias. And I thought there was a strong possibility she was innocent. Um, so I requested the 700-page transcript from the Illinois um, State Supreme Court archives. And uh, I began going through it, which was a a difficult task because they moved so out of order. And so I really had to go back, place what happened, and um, then begin investigating what happened and determine she was innocent and we needed to tell this story. We couldn't just focus on these beautiful women who got away with murder when there was someone who was innocent who was forgotten. And I thought so because I think there's lessons there. So you sort of put the book into five different parts, and so I'm hoping we can just sort of talk about each part um, to sort of walk through this narrative and walk through um, Sabella's story. And so you start out with the first part about her being guilty, and so can you sort of set the stage for what happened to her and and what was going on during that time in Chicago and in the Chicago land area? So yeah, there was in, in Chicago at the time. Um, it was very there. I guess how do I want to phrase it? Um, the laws regarding domestic violence did not protect women. Uh, so very often, when a woman stood up and defended herself, um, and there was a, a a casualty, it would usually not get past what they had at the time a coroner's jury. So they would go before a coroner's jury. The coroner's jury would decide that it was self defense, and the woman would be acquitted before it ever went to a grand jury or to a regular jury. And so, women who killed in Chicago were primarily it was in self defense. But when they did. Um, such as Belva and Beulah and these women who inspired Chicago, they were able to charm a jury and charm their way into an acquittal. And so prosecutors at the time were extremely frustrated. They were tired of going to the newspapers and saying, we couldn't get her. Um, She got away with murder. So in 1922, Sibella Nitti's husband went missing. And they were a poor um, immigrant family. They lived on the outskirts of Chicago on this small garden farm. And um, they had a very primitive life. And her husband went missing for reasons that um, I believe had nothing to do with Sabella. And um, the 
deputy sheriff focused on her and decided that she was guilty and the prosecutors were glad to, to have what they felt was an easy win. So when the book opens, I take people to this moment where the judgment comes through and you have in the courtroom people who are there watching the, 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 the verdict being announced as if it was theater. There's, there's really little sympathy for this poor woman. So Sabala in, in, in the courtroom, and she has no idea what's happening to her. She doesn't speak English, and she also does not speak the standard dialect of Italian. She speaks um, Barese, um, and that's a very distinct dialect of Italian. And it's so distinct that um, I reached out to linguistic experts and I said, what, what is the comparison of if, you know, it's 1920s and I speak the standard Italian dialect, can I communicate with Sibella Nitti? And one of my experts said, no, that the linguistic differences are as profound as English and Dutch. So it would be the equivalent of an English and a Dutch speaker trying to understand each other. So this woman had no translation. And when the book opens, she's just sitting there not even knowing that she has been sentenced to die. And it takes about 24 hours. And so in the very beginning, you meet the, the lawmen who are prosecuting her. You meet kind of you get a sense of what a circus it is, um, how this is being played out in the media. And that you also get a sense there's really no one there to help her. She's on her own. Right. It sounds like in, in reading, it was just to hearing the fact that she had she was sort of sitting there as everything was happening around her and people were judging what she'd done and having no idea. For me, for one, that's really scary. And and then she has this um, lawyer who also sort of has no idea. She has no idea who he is, why he's there. And he really doesn't help the case at all either. No, he had gone. Uh, he was, you know, unfortunately, he was profoundly mentally ill. Um, which you can sense in the book, you know, there's a couple of scenes um, during the trial where you end up laughing aloud because it's so ridiculous. There's one part where he's obsessed with why is a corpse not wearing underpants? And it's like, really, are we really focused on this? Or there's, you know, a couple moments where he's looking, um, he's, he's, kind of making up these words like in Italian. And I, I, I think a lot of readers who have a knowledge of Italian are, were shaking their heads because he would just kind of add an, add an O onto the end of a word and, you know, something like that. And, and he was, he was, he, he had a lot of problems, but what's interesting about him is um, there's been few accounts about Eugene Moran, her attorney. Um, there was a sense that there was something wrong with him because the Supreme court did, did later determine that his his um, quality of of uh, legal representation was inept. But um, how I actually found that was um, his wife, his estranged wife, was an artist who left her papers to the Chicago History Museum. So when I research, I won't just look at the key players involved. I'll look. Um, I'll cast a wider net, um, particularly so I can in- include the women involved, because um, that's when you get the full story. So by doing so, um, we got the full story. Right. And talking about the women at the beginning and all throughout you, you and you mentioned it a, a little while ago, you talk about the role of the newspaper reporters yes. and how they sort of present that and one in particular. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about the press and how you saw, especially you sort of set up how the press is press really um helps Sibylla be guilty as well in some ways. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that in the press reporters? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you, I, I have such a, a bittersweet relationship with these women, particularly Genevieve Forbes, who wrote for the, the Daily Chicago Tribune, because I wrote, or I'm sorry, the Chicago Daily Tribune. I wrote for the Chicago Tribune for more than a decade. I was a contributor. And um, I certainly feel that it was women like her who made it possible for women like me to one day uh, write for the paper. But she, um, that said, she did some great work. There was an immigration piece that she did that was um, very important. But when it came to how she reported these trials and how she treated Sibella Nitti, um, she was wretched. <laughs> she, um, Genevieve Forbes, um, she wrote with an assumption of guilt. She wanted readers, she, she framed it for them. And she, she tapped into these larger um, 
you know, cultural fears that uh, in the U.S. regarding immigration, regarding specifically immigrants um, from Italy, um, in Chicago, larger fears about Italians. Italians at the time were statistically the most violent um, ethnic group in Chicago, and she played to that. Um, she was also really harsh on Sabella's appearance. Um, Sabella, to her, did not look or act the way a woman should. Sabella um, had longer hair. It was not well washed. It was graying. Um, the picture on the cover shows Sabella. She's emaci- emaciated in that photo. You can see from her hollow cheeks. Um, she was very muscular. And um, she worked against her. Or, or Genevieve Forbes used that to work against her. She called her a monkey in print, a crouching animal. And she used Sabella's appearance to try to convince readers that it was indicative of her guilt. And so that was something that fascinated me. Right. And that sort of plays out. And her doing that, you sort of play, you see that play out in the trial. So so you set the book up by sort of putting us into this place about how um, she becomes the first woman in Cook County to be um, sentenced to the death row, like, you know, sort of what's going on at that time. And then you move into the sort of the story of Sabella and what was happening, her relationship with her husband. And so can you tell us a little bit more about her background and, and her husband and her children, her, her um, older sons play a large role in this as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? her sort of background and story? Sure. Yeah. So Sabella Nitty um, was early 40s in uh, about 1922, 1923. Um, a lot of uh, Italians well through the 1920s didn't know their exact birth date. So this is very common. We're not exactly sure how old Sabella Nitty was because she wasn't exactly old. And she was born in Bari um, in southern Italy. And she was married around the age of 15 which again was very typical um, in the Southern provinces. And then she was what we call a white widow. Um, And my own great grandmother was a white widow. And this was that a white widow's husband left Italy and went either to the U S Canada, often Latin America and tried to work and bring back money. Um, And she was called a white widow because for all practical purposes, her husband was gone. He could do nothing for her. He was was not supporting her. Um, And so Sabella had her two oldest sons, James and Michael, um, were their their English names. And then her husband was gone for about a decade. And and, um, he brought her to um, Chicago about five, six years prior to everything happening. So kind of late 19 teens. And um, it was not a better life for them. They lived in, in Stickney, Illinois on what was called a truck garden farm. So this was a farm where they grew vegetables and then they put it in the back of a wagon and went uh, downtown uh, to Randolph Street and sold it wholesale. So really difficult existence, a type of existence where, you know, a drought or a a bad storm could flood the crops and just ruin everything. Um, And so in this primitive existence, they had no running water, they had no electricity. And it's important to note that because... um, Many of us here in Chicago area live in houses that were actually built at at the time. When I was researching the book, I lived in a condominium that had been built at that time. Um, Now I live in a house built in 1927. So Chicago was rushing towards uh, modernity, towards um, advancements in sanitation. And then the Nitty family lived as though it was centuries before. And part of that as well was the violence. Her husband was an alcoholic. He solved problems um, with his fists. He was violent towards Bella. He was violent towards um, their sons. The two oldest ones were in their 20s. Um, The middle son was about 16. And then she had two girls who were about five five and three, respectively. So um, the older sons were beginning to fight. um, And it was a violent household. And so, so they've got this household, and then what happens is her husband sort of 
disappears shortly after um, a physical altercation, a fight with him, his older son. Yeah. So the second son, uh, Michael, wanted to get married. And in Chicago at the time, it was it, the way it worked was the man, the Italian man set up an apartment and then he did the hard furnishings, you know, the couch, the coffee table, all that good stuff. And the woman really only brought um, the soft goods into the relationship. And the man also had to pay for the wedding. So he had a lot he needed to do in order to get married. Um, and he asked his father for money. And his father, instead of saying no, slapped him. So Michael fought back. And it was a brutal drag him out the door, break the ribs, bl- you know, bloody face, bruised eyes, that type of fight. And that had happened about a few weeks prior. And Francesco Nitti, in response, left the family for a few days. And when he returned, it was a Saturday evening, end of July. He said to Sabella at the end of a workday, go to bed. I'm going to wait up, make sure nobody takes a match to the crops. And he never came up to bed. And Sabella Nitti woke up in the middle of the night, realized her husband was gone, woke up a farmhand and began, you know, walking a mile to the police magistrate's house, asking for help, going in the opposite direction to the um, the, the, the mayor's house, just trying to get someone to understand that her husband was in danger. Um, so why uh, the, the deputy sheriff honed in on this woman who was trying to help her husband, it, it clearly was a, a bias that he had, um, this Dasso, this deputy sheriff Dasso, that had nothing to do with the facts regarding the case. Right. And Dasso plays a large role in um, her going to trial and going to jail prior to that. Like he decides that she, one of the farmhands is her lover and she goes to jail before she goes to jail for, um, or before she is sentenced for the crime of killing her husband, she is sentenced for um, adultery. Adultery. And so can you talk? (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about the, the role of that deputy in all of this and, and, and how he sort of played a key part in her, her ending up eventually on death row. So um, deputy sheriff Paul Dasso was, uh, he was of Northern Italian descent. Uh, His family was from Genoa. And he um, was a lawman of the very worst kind. And he, for many years, had worked um, in essentially what was kind of a boys' prison slash reform school. And in the late 1800s, he, uh, the aldermen of Chicago, ended up investigating and pulling him from the position because he was so brutally violent to these young men. Um, he would, every morning, line them up, Boys who were accused of a small infraction, he would be judge and jury and then, you know, punisher. And he would just brutally whip them in front of everybody. Unless a boy was under the age of eight, then he would lock them in a dark cell because he found that they were afraid of the dark. So we're dealing with a person who was very violent and believed in his right to judge and punish others. And what's interesting to note is, you know, for Chicago aldermen to agree about anything <laughs> and remove this man. I mean, that's really saying how profoundly bad this man was. But of course, you know, given the Chicago way, he wasn't removed from law enforcement. He was actually promoted to to um, Cook County Deputy Sheriff. So he was just, in his work, he thought he was a Sherlock Holmes. Um, he believed in his own suspicions and his own theories. And he just came up with a theory when he was called out to Stickney to investigate the the, the missing uh, Francesco Nitti, he came up with a theory that Sabella Nitti was having an affair with her 22-year-old farmhand. And he believed that Sabella and this farmhand, Francesco Nitti, with a mallet, threw his body into the back of, of a cart and then drove him and in, in, in dumped him into um, kind of a, like a, you know, a, a water uh, canal for uh, a sanitation system, which then he would change to once the body was found in the sewer, he was like, oh, did I say sanitation system? I meant sewer. So he would change it and adjust it 
as needed. And he was absolutely obsessed with this woman. So he brought her initially before a grand jury. The grand jury did not believe it. Um, this is in about August of, of 1922. And so um, since he couldn't get away with that, he decided that he would accuse Sibella and uh, Pietro of um, adultery and fornication, which um, was an Illinois law. Um, that was founded in the 1800s to stop Mormons from settling in Illinois when they were moving west so that they, they would not um, be legally allowed to set up multiple households. So he relied on this law and he shopped around until he got a jurisdiction, um, which is my hometown of Oak Park, um, which is kind of funny for me to see this because in Oak Park, we, we pride ourselves on being this liberal town. And then here you have you know somebody going ahead with this nonsense charge. And she was in, in jail waiting to hear see a magistrate. She was in jail for about two months. She was at Cook County. So when the, the magistrate heard the case, decided it was nonsense, released her, she came back um, and found that her farm had been completely liquidated by her oldest son, James. He'd gone to court um, which ended up being a, a great resource for me to go into the probate court archives. And this is how I was really able to, to piece together life on the Nitty family farm is going through these initial records. Um, so he um, liquidated everything and named himself and, and took about, it was about $800 in cash. So when Sabella was released, um, her own attorney, who was Eugene Moran, um, he you know, countered that in court and the judge ordered James to repay his mother the $800. So um, to, to kind of advance the story, Sabella spends this very hard winter in a shack um, owned by one of her farmhands. It's just a terrible shanty. It's very cold, a terrible winter in Chicago that year. And um, that March, her and Peter, who has nowhere else, or sorry, Pietro, he has nowhere else to go. Um, they end up marrying although it is my contention, they were never having an affair. And it is my contention that um, they were really only friends um, prior to the marriage. So that uh, May, there was a um, very badly decomposed corpse found in a drainage, or they, they say drainage ditch, a sewer. You know, um, the same type of sewer system we have today where there's a heavy manhole cover in the middle of the street. And then um, the other entry, there's two other entryways. One is on the side of the curb, you know, that little top, high top grate is what they call it. And then another is um, connects to the, the canal. So it's a very large pipe. And they find a corpse decayed beyond recognition. And I, in case any of your listeners like to like maybe breakfast or lunch or something when they're, they're listening to your podcast, I won't go into detail and ruin their meal. Um, I will just say um, the top part resembled a, um, a, a skeleton you would see in a biology classroom. So beyond recognition. And so they find this body. Oh, and, and one thing I thought was really interesting, and then we'll move into your third part, was the fact that after her son stole her money, basically sold off everything she owned, um, would not help her in any way. She was still seeing her, like she would, he would still come to visit. She still was trying to have a relationship with him, you know, for a while there. Uh, which does not really say cold-blooded murder. You know, exactly to me, that. And Sabella, <laughs> Sabella was a good person. Um, she, and as a book, you know, shows she was cheerful, she was industrious, um, and she was forgiving. That she was, she thought, you know, if James would give her the money back, she had this big idea, and that idea was the full family was going to open a store. And she was going to include him on this. She, they, so the, the older sons would no longer have to work in the factory. And the rest of the family would not have to toil on this terrible farm. You know, the Nitty family was going in business for themselves. And she was including him on that. And the worst part is, is that after they found this body, um, Dasso goes and rounds up James and Michael. They identify this badly decayed corpse as their father. And then... James actually shows up at the shanty where his mother lives to watch her get arrested. So he's there for the show. He's, he, you know, and it's funny because one of his granddaughters ended up emailing me 
and saying, oh, we heard about this book and my family's so excited. And, um, you know, my, I think it was his great grand, I, I think it was her father was one of James's sons. I was like, yeah, you, you don't want your dad reading this book. You really don't because um, it's going to really change your memories <laughs> of how he did oh, just a tremendous amount of bad stuff. And the thing is, like, he admits it in court. He says, I was there. You know, right. I was I was there for the show. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which, yeah, adds to the. The collect the memory we create yes. versus the what actually. So it's happened. a sad scene because like Sabella's crying real hard, and you know she she'd been away from her daughters for two months before from the adultery charge, and she's crying real hard, and you know there's James. So at that point in time, they arrest uh, Sabella, they and, and arrest Pietro, uh, the farmhand. And then they arrest her 16-year-old son, um, who goes by the name Charlie, and he's accused of, of passing the mallet. Now, Dasso's decided that Francesco Nitti was killed with a mallet and that Charlie passed him the mallet and then he helped with the body. And, and so he, he you know, has his, his Siri on that. So the three of them are arrested and they're brought to Cook County Jail. And they go before, I have a uh, chapter called Unraveling the Safety Nets. And it's just going through it all the safety nets that we have in our justice system um, to protect people and how every single one of them unraveled. And she's just falling further and further and further into the system. Right. And so that, and you're talking about, you move into this sort of third part where you sort of really look at what happens in the trial. And as you said, all the ways in which she it just falls through those cracks. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that trial and what's going on and, and sort of how, because I, I thought there were many times in, in reading your book that it really showed some of the things that ha- are still in place today and some of the ways that they, people still fall through the cracks, right? It's, it very much lets us see um, some of the issues that are still going on. And that's on what now, I love about historical fiction is that Sabella lived in a world that is somewhat familiar to us in the sense that a lot of the buildings still exist. You know, the, we, they were writing the L back then we're writing it now. Um, so it's similar enough, but it, in which it makes sense to us, but it's also far enough away where we can learn from it and critique it and then think about ourselves today and where we're at. So, um, Sabella in her trial, there, there's two prosecutors, um, uh, Milton Smith and Michael Romano, and, um, they played to the bias against Southern Italians. They, um, in court called her a Lady Macbeth. They called her um, a murderess. I mean, they used all these these words that now um, a lawyer would stop. And they should have stopped it then. But um, Moran was pretty hapless. And the judge in the case, Judge David, he began the case, you know, telling, reminding the jury, we don't even know if this corpse is Francesco Nitti. We don't know how this corpse died. Um, we don't know if a crime occurred. And then he just gives up. And there's really, there's no evidence in the case, right? There's no eyewitnesses. Um, but there's a lot of things going on. And, and one is you have a, um, a Cook County coroner who is so overwhelmed that the um, coroner's physician just kind of glances at the body when he gives the cause of death. Um, so there's not proper medical testimony. Um, there's no eyewitnesses except for James. Um, the only way he can identify his father is by saying, I recognize the shoes and the ring. But Sabella says, my husband never wore a ring. So we, we don't really even know if this corpse was, was Francesco Nitti, but the prosecution plays to the bias. And there's a couple things they do. You know, they play to the bias against Italian Americans um, who experience a tremendous amount of discrimination um, in the U.S. Um, and in Chicago, particularly at this time. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people have forgotten about, but, you know, it- Italians were not, um, they, they we're not considered the same, receiving the same privileges as other citizens. Um, and part of that was in, you know, medical care, but also in the court system. Um, so 
she was guilty based on her ethnicity. There was an assumption of danger that the, the, the newspapers were playing into. And then she was also hypersexualized as an Italian-American woman. And we see this to this day with different ethnicities where, um, you know, there are, we see certain ethnicities having to deal with this notion of like, you know, the spicy, sexual, exotic woman, the sense of, you know, because the person is a different ethnicity or race, that she's more sexual and it's there for, for other people's pleasure. And so Italian-American women were dealing with that as well. And Sabella was, was deemed hypersexual. And she was treated in a way that we see when I bring in Belle von Beulah as contrast, then we really see how Sabella Nitti is being treated. So if you mind me kind of making that contrast and bringing them into the, the fold. Oh, okay, great. Um, so Belva and Beulah um, are, are these two women that um, both of them in the spring of 1924, they um, kill their secret boyfriends. Um, Belva is, um, married or a divorced socialite and she shoots her married boyfriend, um, in his car and then says she was too drunk to remember anything. And then Beulah is called Chicago's most beautiful slayer. And she was the inspiration for Roxy Hart and she's married. And while her husband is at work, she invites over her secret boyfriend. They drink a gallon of wine. And then they do what two people who drink a gallon of wine do, and that is they get in a rip-roaring fight. And she shoots him. So when she's taken to the police station that night, she's actually in her nightie because she never got dressed that day. It's a Tuesday. She drank a gallon of wine like on a Tuesday, never got dressed. You know she had some rank BO, yet Sabella is the dirty one. I mean, this is what we're talking about. She gets in court. They will make no allusions to what she was doing. In fact, when she goes on and suggests that, you know, she was some sort of victim and she was risking assault, they allow it. Meanwhile, Sabella Nitti says flat out, I never had an affair. I never killed my husband and they won't even hear it. So, um, when Sabella, um, you know, she's actually, before these two ladies show up, she's sentenced to die. And that, um, happens in, in July of 1923. And it sparks an outrage in the city. Um, because what's unique about this case, there had been another woman in Chicago who had been sentenced to die about 20 years earlier, but the judge didn't uphold it. And so in this one, the judge upheld it. So she was, she was staring down the gallows. Right. And through this whole trials, you know, everybody's watching this happen. The judge, I thought it was really fascinating. Like you said, the judge sort of just gave up. Um, and, and her lawyer is, is showing that he is really not competent and what sort of turns us around and she also has no idea what's going on. So she doesn't even know when she is sentenced that she is sentenced to death. Somebody has to come and tell her. Um, and it, so then you talk about what really turns us around, which is a, a female lawyer and a female lawyer coming in, which I, she was probably for me, one of the most fascinating parts of the whole thing. I'm like, I want to oh, look at her. You should mention that. Um, so can you talk? Uh, that <laughs> is, is actually that what, um, I, what I'm working on right now um, is uh, a young adult version of this book, but focusing solely on, on Helen um, because she is amazing. So, yeah, so can you talk? She's so fast. Just in the bits that you get, I'm really fascinated by her. And so can we can yeah, talk a bit so, about her? Um, Helen, um, they pronounce the, 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 the last name Cerise. She's from my hometown of Oak Park. And she um, was um, born in, in the end of 1899. She was in the same graduating class as Ernest Hemingway. And um, I've learned from her family that he would – tease her, Ernest Hemingway would, and call her Pollyanna because she was very good at seeing the bright side. And um, what's interesting about you, Ernest Hemingway has this reputation for being this adventurer and this courageous man, but you actually compare him to, to Helen, and of the two, she was far more brave because she wanted to be a lawyer. And um, this is at a time when it was a very polite dinner conversation to say women can't be lawyers. 
women were dismissed from the courtroom if there was going to be indelicate conversation. They didn't serve on juries. Um, and she wanted to change that in her own subtle, quiet way. And so Helen and um, when Sitbala was sentenced to death, Helen was um, 23, almost 24, and she had been having a very difficult time uh, starting a law, a law career that no law firm would have. She had several knocks against her. She was young. Um, she was female. And then she was beautiful. So where Sabella was criticized for being ugly, Helen um, had her own bias for being beautiful because there was an assumption of, well, why, why aren't you getting married? You're a beautiful woman. Why aren't you? You're from a good family. Why are you wasting your beauty on law? So she's really this fascinating woman because she, she weeds this team of six attorneys who takes Sabella's case on appeal. And the one thing she does, um, they, they, they have to run like hell to get this appeal into the, the Illinois Supreme Court because Moran, there was 95 days set, uh, sentencing, or I'm sorry, there was 95 days separating Sabella from the gallows and Moran wasted them. So we're down to days that the team of six has to work on getting together um, this appeal um, to, to, to get Sabella reprieve. So they get the good news is that the Illinois Supreme Court is going to hear the case, but the bad news is they're going to take about five months to read it. And so uh, Sabella's going to have to languish in jail. And so Helen decides that she is going to use that time to to just manipulate this this um, terrible system that rewards beautiful women, so she decides that she is going to give Sabella a jailhouse makeover, and she does. So in five months, by the time Belva and Beulah show up that spring, when Sabella goes into court, she has a haircut. Her hair is kind of this rich, beautiful brown. Um, Helen's been feeding her. She has new clothes, makeup. Um, and then a testament as to how smart Sabella was. She learns to speak English while being a widow. That's so difficult. And she's also working on her reading and writing. And so by the time the Illinois Supreme Court set orders a new trial in the spring of 1924, Sabella is going into court with Balvin Beulah because now she's in line behind them. And you have this amazing contrast when they show up in court, the three of them. You have these two native-born women who've been able to just use their appearance to um, charm charm the, the, the court system. And then you have Sabella, who uh, you know, could have been dead by then if it hadn't have been for, for Helen Cerise and the team of six. Right. And so can you talk a little bit, too, about um, what sort of jail was like for them and and what that sort of that um, transformation, because you have some pictures in your book as well. And even looking at those like, you know, black and white pictures, you can see the extreme, the stark difference between Sabella on the cover and Sabella once she gets the haircut and the makeover and starts looking like um, that sort of non-threatening and traditional female and what that means to sort of be feminine. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well and how that sort of play, you know, the important of that in the larger sort of society because another thing I keep going on but another thing you talk about is how these sort of women groups sort of took to her um, and her case which I found really fascinating as well yeah so and when so the, the verdict first came that? out there was a lot of news headlines that said can, uh, can beauty be convicted and the women's groups made great arguments they're writing to Judge David um and they were saying, we don't like this. A woman, women don't make the law. We don't enforce the law. We don't prosecute the law. The laws are made against us. And we don't like knowing that because we're not beautiful, we could be convicted. That it matters, not guilt or innocence. I mean, I think it's really profound to, to, to go back 100 years and think who actively made and enforced the laws. We did not have female police officer, very rare. Um, there's a picture 
uh, a matron who was, um, you know, in, in, in charge of the women's prison, but that's kind of more of a, a jailhouse enforcer. But you didn't have patrol officers who were female. You didn't have sheriffs, detectives, um, prosecutors, judges. Uh, anybody who wrote the criminal code was not female. And so this is a very vulnerable life to live. And to think that um, how you look can shape whether you get a, a rope put around your neck or whether you get to leave the courthouse at the, after closing statements is, is pretty threatening. And so um, these women were writing letters and it didn't go very far except to, to spark this, this larger conversation. And to also, I think it, it captured the attention of someone like Helen Cerise, who was looking to start a law career and no law firm would have her and she was available. And so she took the case on pro bono rounded up a couple other attorneys who knew they were all Italian American. They all had experienced discrimination and they took the case on. So it did spark that attention. Um, then come the spring, um, Helen knew what she was doing. She had manipulated, uh, an unjust system to work in her favor. And that was that Sabella could speak a little English. She could write a little, um, she, um, looked like there's one picture I have in the book where she's holding up an example of her writing and she looks so darn cute. You know, she's just really, you know, an adorable person and she's naturally cheerful. You know, she naturally kind of radiates this positivity. And so, um, she, you look at her and she does not look like a woman who would kill. She sincerely looks like she should be in the woman's group planning like their next big flower show. She always, you know, she looks like mother of the bride. She really does. She looks like her big weekends to be at the shower and making sure she writes down who gave what to who so that her daughter can send out thank you notes. That's what she looks like she should be doing, not being in court for murder. So um, once that happened, they could no longer play to the bias. They had no evidence and um, it was going to be an uphill battle. And what was amazing is that Milton and Romano were not giving up. Um, they were proud. Dasso was proud. The three of them in their obituaries wrote about Sabella Nitti. They were proud. And so one thing, too, that goes on is, so we you have these other, you mentioned that picture in your book. Um, there's a picture above it that has sort of Sabella not looking beautiful and these four other women who, who more than likely did commit the crime of murder, right, um, and get away with it, um, looking very beautiful there and talking about these sort of these murderesses of Chicago. But Sabella also befriended them. Um, some of them while they were all in jail together. And so can you talk a little bit about the relationship of these women in jail and, and sort of how Sabella's trial also impacted um, how these women sort of moved forward with their trials? Yeah. So Beulah, um, the one who inspired Roxy, um, she wanted nothing to do with Sabella. I mean, again, going back to here is Beulah, drinking on a Wednesday in our nighty, and she's disgusted by Sabella. She believes she is so much better than Sabella Nitti. And they kind of reference that in the, the movie Chicago. Um, I think she makes a comment like, poor thing, nobody cares about her. And in reference to the, the ballerina that represents Sabella in the movie. Um, but you, uh, Belva um, did let her do her wash so um, they had kind of a servant lady of the house relationship so that Sabella could make a little money. Um, Sabella, though, befriended um, a young woman named Mom. It was the name she went by. Um, and she was going to prison for murder. And, and she had been um, with her boyfriend. They'd been trying to rob different factories um, over a several month span and they they were really bad at it and um they never succeeded but they did shoot at a security guard and killed him 
And then they, they both blamed each other and Kitty went on the run. And then she ended up getting a very, you know, long sentence of, uh, um, more than if she had just taken a plea. So, um, she was very kind to Sabella and they were friends and there was probably about a, you know, a 20 year age difference, um, in them, but they both had their problems in life and they were both treated nastily by the media. Kitty was called the wolf woman, um, sometimes called the tiger woman. I think the chapter I have in there is called monkey meets the tiger. And that's a reference to the names that Genevieve Forbes called these two women in, in the newspaper. So, um, in terms of prison, um, Belva and Beulah lounged around, and Sabella would actually take on laundry or clean her cell, do things to stay busy because she was an industrious person. So kind of reflective there of their different experiences. Um, Belva, though, or I'm sorry, Beulah, um, just like in the movie, was very nervous that she was not being elevated above these other women, and she faked a pregnancy, and her trial ended very quick as a result. Right. It was very interesting that sort of the part five where you sort of go through these women and and their different trials and how they do that. And the fact that all she had to do was say she was pregnant. And then after she was freed, the pregnancy sort of disappeared and and nobody asked about it. Two days later. (laughs) I mean, I think they got her go on a Saturday and on Monday she was filling out her divorce papers. Right. it was really fast, and and the prosecutors so they let it go. That's what kills me. They didn't even they didn't even retry it. They just they moved on to Belva, and so Belva, um, she got some lucky timing, and that is um, I include in the book as well. Uh, Leopold and Loeb, um, two, you know they're interesting too, and and I I have a, a project about them that I just finished. Um, that I'm fascinated by them. Because they were truly serial killers. And like Belva and Beulah, they had their appearances. Um, people had a hard time believing that because of their appearance, because of their status, that they were guilty of what they did. And so these are two people who took um, their place in history as genius gentleman killers when they weren't. They were sadistic budding serial killers. And so for people who don't know about um, that crime, in in 1924, two University of Chicago students killed a 14-year-old boy for the thrill of it. And they said it was a type of science experiment. And there's a 10-day period from uh, May 21 through June 1st um, in which the city was in an uproar and they were seeking these killers. And so Belva got a little lucky and that by the time her trial came forward they were focused on Leopold and Lope um which is interesting because they still didn't give up on Sabella now they felt like well Kitty mom her trial was in November of 1923 and she didn't get the the the, the news so they were pretty disappointed in that and then Beulah faked a pregnancy and then Belva just had this really good attorney so she got away with murder, and now you have Leopold and Loeb, and this is going to be one hell of a fight because he's hired Claren- you know, they've hired Clarence Darrow, the famous attorney, um, and so they really wanted to keep- hold on to Sabella. They weren't done with her. Uh, Illinois Supreme Court had ordered a new trial by June. They let her out on bail, and they just weren't giving up. They really wanted her dead. No, I found it really fascinating about how these sort of trials all came together and um, the way they played out, like you were talking about, in the media, in sort of public opinion, and what that meant, and how even though of all of them, you could tell that that Sabella's case was the had the least amount of, had no evidence, but the least amount of evidence, the least amount it, it, it would should have been the case that they let go right away. Right. And compared to any of the others. And yet it was the one that they really pushed for more than um, any of them. You know, it's interesting because um, in in January, um, I taught a course um, at Elmhurst College um, here in the Chicago area on stigma and uh, wrongful convictions. And um, I was looking at the Department of Justice has some studies out as to what they call near misses and wrongful convictions that were later overturned. 
and, and gone through to see what they had in common um, in terms of what was statistically significant about these people together. And then they also did a qualitative interviews with, with um, uh, prosecutors and investigators and judges um, and different law personnel to find out what background they could give. And one thing that was really fascinating was um, prosecutors admitting to getting what they called tunnel vision, which is there was something about this case that they latched onto and they would not give up on. And they would do things like ignore evidence that suggested otherwise, um, not ask questions that should be asked, not let the defense know that certain evidence was being admitted or had been found and would help their case. Um, and so I think that's where we, we get into the stigma of it, that there's something about the individual that um, just sparks an extreme bias in, 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 in the law personnel involved and develops a tunnel vision in which they're not willing to give up. And we see that with Sibella Nitti. Of the, the, the four cases, she, she was clearly innocent, the only innocent one. Well, and what's interesting, too, and you sort of allude at it throughout the book, but you talk about it a little in your sort of epilogue, is the fact that she's the one we've forgotten about, too. Leopold and Loeb are often talked about, right? We often know, you know, they are used with the, um, oh, the who were they, the Menendez brothers? Um, you, you know, there's those different trials where we reference back, right? Chicago, the play, the musical has um, brought the, the other women sort of to the forefront. But Sabella Nitti's the one that is sort of forgotten about. And so that idea of how um, these sort of, this set of trials or this set of sort of murders that were going on at that time um, have really continued in popular culture to be discussed, but except for the except for this really fascinating one right and so i find that really interesting that was one of the questions that you know when you're you're pitching the book to the editor and and you're talking about the relevance it's it's why do we do this why in the collective memory do we is it because it wasn't fun to why is it and i think because it's scary i think that that there have been sabella nitties in the past and there will be again and the thing now is that the chance, uh, the likelihood that a person will get the media attention that she did to spark a, a, a conversation that encourages um, lawyers to step up for the community to be outraged. We live in a very cluttered media environment, and it's going to be far more difficult now for people to get attention. So I think that, and, and plus, you know, there's some interesting research out there now that people are so pushed into plea deals that we don't see, you know, our, our court system is meant to be efficient, which is great because we don't need people languishing in, in jail for years waiting for a trial. And, and that's the positive. The bad side is, is that the courts have to, to, to expedite trials. And in the name of efficiency, um, lawyers are often um, see it beneficial to push for a plea deal. So what I think we're seeing probably is more innocent people um, agreeing to short-term jail sentences or um, some type of probation that affects their record and their their lives after. You know, of course, we're always going to have cases that we did, you know, Troy Davis is a great example out of Georgia in uh, probably about six, seven years ago, um, where there was some real questions about whether he, he was innocent and whether that execution should have happened. But I think that's probably more the extreme and probably more happens every day is somebody being pushed into a plea deal. Right. And, 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 Sibylla Nitti shows that sort of also with the fact that she, at, she wasn't understanding the language. She sort of didn't know what was going on with her and what it meant. And I think what you're talking about there translates a lot into that um, pushing for a plea deal and getting a plea deal and not really completely under being sort of t- not completely understanding what's going on at the time until you sort of go through that. Yeah, I think if Sabella Nitti had been alive in, if this had happened in 2018, um, they she would have signed off on like some seven-year plea deal that we had never heard of. And we never would have heard of her. She would have gone to jail and 
then we just never would have heard of her. Um, I think that's what would have happened to her today. Yeah. And so can you talk about sort of, so after all this happens, can you sort of talk about what happens for the rest of Sybil and Nitty's life and, and sort of happens with her? Yeah. Well, I hope um, just, you know, I hope people still buy the book. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I actually got to meet one of her granddaughters, came to one of my, my programs. Um, and um, so Sybil and Nitty, um, in December of 1924, the prosecution just gave up. They didn't have anything to work with. They'd been so busy with Leopold and Loeb. They'd been doing one continuance after the next, and finally they gave up. And so Sabella and Nitty and, and, and Pietro, they never lived together again. They were really not quite a couple. Um, and so Sabella lived in the city for um, well past the 1930, married uh, a Barese man. And moved to California. Um, one of her daughters remained in the city and married. The other one went to California. Charlie went to California. Michael went to California. Um, Michael and James did have to do some prison time for robbery, um, armed robbery. And um, James went up to Michigan. So Sabella, um, I learned from her granddaughter, she had a nice, she lived out her life in California. Um, I actually was able to see a picture of what she looked like as something that she took probably in the 1940s. And um, her granddaughter said um, she was a cheerful woman, she was a loving woman, and that she married a nice man. And she said that, you know, I I got it right, that her grandmother was industrious um, and smart, and, um, like so many people, she was really smart, never went to school, but just, um, was quite an intelligent person. So, um, I think in that sense, it does have a good ending far better than that Hungarian ballerina that represented her in Chicago. So, um, you know, for, for people who are like, well, now I know the ending, um, my goal with the book is to, to make people feel that they're in 1920 Chicago. And to feel that um, they get to go into another woman's life for a little bit when they read. And there's way more that goes on than what we've talked about <laughs> in the book. Definitely. Yes. Yes. Um, and really some really fascinating connect connections. And so we've been talking for a while. And um, so I'm, I'm going to ask the question. You sort of alluded to it earlier, but do you want to talk about whatever you're working on next or any new projects? Yeah. So I have, thank you, by the way. <laughs> so coming out next spring is a book called Don't Worry About Me, a Navy nurse POW in World War II. And that is about um, a, a Navy nurse named Dorothy Still, who was a POW um, in the Philippines of the Empire of and her and 11 other nurses nursed throughout their captivity in the concentration camp. And they were amazing. And they've not been properly remembered. Um, so my goal is to elevate them uh, to the status that male war her- heroes have received. Um, so that is next uh, spring with Chicago Review Press. And then um, right now I am discussing um, a... Um, book on Leopold and Loeb, um, in which I'm correcting the history. Uh, I think that's my work is I like to write about women, um, whose stories haven't been told and deserve to be told, but I also like to correct history. Um, and Leopold and Loeb need to be corrected. They weren't gentlemen killers. Um, we need to stop thinking that there are certain type of people when they kill or they do something bad, that there's a higher reason for it. Um, they're not, <laughs> they just wanted no they wanted to like see what it was like to kill and they killed and had some they, money. Were, they were serial killers yeah. they, they, they had yeah. tried mm-hmm. before and failed they had castrated someone they they were sadists they, they there's a lot of issues there so i have a really interesting um book on that that is um in discussions and then um i'm going to be discussing with my editor at chicago review press um a young adult book on um helen um cerise so i've been meeting with her family um the ones in oak park in the last couple weeks and um trying to see how i'm gonna 
take the book um, and, and and write it for young people because she's so amazing. Um, and she, I know, I was like, this woman. There was some quote about when she went to a um, lecture and was asked if she was in the wrong place. Uh, you haven't. You have something in there, and I was just like, oh, I love her. She, she's <laughs> so great, and it's really neat um, talking with her family. Like she was just this like really subtle, quiet woman, um, where everybody kind of like just leaned in to hear her. And, um, she ended up just making so many changes. Um, you know, she was really instrumental in getting women on juries in Illinois. Um, so she, she was a woman who did a lot of amazing things. So those are my, my book projects right now. Um, it sounds like a lot, but each project can take about two to year, you know, the, the Navy nurse one, I started that two years ago, Leopold and Loeb, I started two years ago. Um, so the Helen one is beginning stages. Um, and so that's just kind of, it's a long process. Well, Emily, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, again, this is Emily Lebeau. Um, I'm going to Lucchese. I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Emily Laveau Lucchese, the author of Ugly Prey, An Innocent Woman, and the Death Sentence That Scandalized the Jazz Age Chicago. So, Emily, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. 